In today's globalised world, comparative criminology can provide some incredibly interesting insights into the workings and important trends of criminal justice systems. However, information needs to be understood within its context, otherwise it can be accidentally or purposefully used to provide a distorted narrative. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Catherine Hurd is a senior research fellow at ICPR, the Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research, based at Birkbeck, University of London. At ICPR, Catherine is also the director of the World Prison Research Programme, a programme of international comparative research on prisons and imprisonment, which builds on the work of the World Prison Brief, ICPR's online database, providing details of the prison systems of over 220 independent countries and dependent territories. Catherine was also the head of policy at the NGO Fair Trials International for five years and has been involved in many other projects aiming to understand and reform prison projects internationally. I'm very happy to say Catherine joins me today. Catherine, welcome to Justice Focus. You're very welcome, Omar. It's good to be with you. Yeah, no, great to chat. And um, I know that we've we've met on the NGO circuit a few times before. And it's, yeah, it's just great to, to get in contact again Um through this, these tricky times. Um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about your work on specifically to do with the World Prison Research Programme and just generally what's drawn you to these kind of larger scale international criminal or criminal justice projects that you've been involved in in the past and currently now. Sure, I'd love to. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose my, my journey into comparative criminal justice work began at Fair Trials um, mm. quite a while ago now, in about 2008. Um, and what we were, we were working on there was defence rights, um, and particularly in cross-border cases, whether people mm. received fair treatment on arrest um, and through criminal trial processes. Um, and we looked in particular at pre-trial detention for a number of years. Um, mm. And we, we basically uncovered a huge amount of unevenness in the way that fair trial rights and broader human rights were protected or not protected across different countries. Mm. And they were the countries we were looking at were all in the European Union. So it was all based on the assumption that, you know, the, the, the human rights framework, the, the European Convention on Human Rights, would more or less be be restri- you know, respected and applied mm. equally across the board. But what we found was that just wasn't the case. Um, so it, it just got me interested. It sparked my interest. And, and as a lawyer by background, you know, I knew what a difference good legal representation could make. Um, uh, and um, so that, that's how the journey began. In terms of what I'm doing now at ICPR, um, so I was recruited to head up the World Prison Research Programme um, at ICPR, which is part of the School of Law at Birkbeck, uh, back in 2016. And mm-hmm. as you said, the aim of it really was to build on this fantastic resource, the World Prison Brief, which is a database that holds data on the prison populations of pretty much every country in the world. Yeah and much more besides, um, a huge amount of trend data, but also a lot of 
um, material some people might not be aware of, like prison inspection reports, uh, reports on the work of NGOs mm, um, mm. in different countries. And in, in many countries um, that don't have you know, national preventive mechanisms or other forms of oversight, it's very important for, for people to be able to keep an eye on what data does exist. Um, and so, so yeah, that was that was the the way that started. You know, my my interest in imprisonment and detention, uh, going back to fair trials, but obviously, no focus at fair trials at all on what happens after sentence. That's for, you know, and that was mm, very yeah. much a, a big step forward for for my work to start looking at you know the, everything that happens from imprisonment onwards. So that the moment someone gets into custody, but the whole journey. You know the sentencing process, um, all the different ways in which uh, procedural fairness or the lack of it can affect the sentencing outcome, and of course um, what happens within custody and the huge variation between the way people are treated in prisons across the world. Mm. That was what you know the new uh, direction was going to take me into with with the work at ICPR, and it's it's been an incredible journey so far. Yeah, and I mean, I've, I, I certainly cite a lot of the, that work that you've just mentioned regularly, and, and I know lots of people all over the world have, and I know that uh, there's somebody very famous in the US who, who cited the data um, oh, yeah. a little while you're, ago. You're talking about outgoing President Barack Obama, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you've pretty done impressive. Your research. You're talking about impact. That's, uh... Well, yes, I mean, it was incredible. Bar- Barack Obama did quite a lot during his time to start to redress the incredible unfairness of the way um, sentencing laws were working with, with the, the sort of lurch towards greater and greater use of mandatory sentencing, three strikes rules, um, the, the very heavy approach to um, drug offending. And, mm. you know, he and his advisors had spotted um, that the racial uh, unfairness that was being brought about by <clears throat> the way, particularly that um, crack cocaine offences were, were being sentenced in comparison to powder cocaine Mm. Uh, cases, you know, so he brought he brought in a huge number of reforms, particularly the I think it was called the Fair Sentencing Act, and his last um, piece of um, piece of work, sort of pulling all of that together, was an article that he wrote for the Harvard Law Review, and we were very happy to see that World Prison Brief data were were referenced in that in that article. Um, so yes, um, still a long way to go in America, though I have to say. Yeah, of course. And um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, doing the comparative work really highlights that in terms of the percentage of the the world population versus prison population in the US. It does. um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, let me talk a little bit perhaps about the comparative project we're doing at the moment. Um, We're working on um, a project that uh, looks in detail at 10 jurisdictions globally. Mm. Um, Information about it can can be found on ICPR's website. Um, We we call it the 10 Country Project for short, but its it's purpose is to understand uh, the drivers to rapidly rising rates of imprisonment um, across a very diverse range of jurisdictions. And Mm. working with civil society organisations, 
try and come up with practical ways of driving those numbers down um, and reversing those trends. So the countries um, cover all five continents. Um, in Africa, we're looking at Kenya and South Africa. Um, so just briefly, Kenya is currently operating prisons at over twice capacity. Yeah. Um, they, they, people regularly experience really severe medical problems in prisons, TB, scabies. There we've got the problems of overuse of imprisonment for very minor crimes and, and way too much pre-trial detention contributing to overcrowding. Um, yeah. In South Africa, you know, again, severe overcrowding. There's been, a, I think, a 3,000% rise in the number of people serving life sentences since wow. the mid-90s in South Africa. I mean, they do have a, a massive problem with, with serious violence and sexual crime in South Africa. Mm. Um, so, you know, that, that has to be tackled. But this, this, this massive rise in life sentences is, is, you know, a very questionable approach to, to tackling that. The other, yeah. the, and then the, the conditions when you get into the prison as well. Well, so I mean, the conditions of, exist. yeah, they, they really are yeah. atrocious. Um, and um, there's, a, there's a lot of police, um, a lot of uh, warder brutality, a lot of um, violence, prisoner-on-prisoner prisoner violence, and, and a great deal of, uh, of illness and sickness in yeah. pris in, among prisoners. Um, so so moving to the Americas, the countries that we're, we're looking at there are Brazil and the USA, Obviously, USA being federal, we had to pick a state, so we've, we've picked New York State to focus right. on there. Um, mm. Brazil, you know something about Brazil, Omar. I know it, it, a lot of people won't realise just how massively that country's prison population mm. has risen. So in 1973, there were around 30,000 prisoners in Brazil, and today it's well over 600,000. So that's a 20-fold increase yeah. uh, you know it's all about the war on drugs and the mm -hmm. way in which brazil's position as a as you know being bang in the middle of an international drug trafficking route as, as well as you know extreme income inequality and um political instability over many mm. years it's all combined um uh, to create this this absolute hell of over imprisonment, um, prisons are under gang control in, in in many parts of the country. You know, violence, riots, and massacres are regularly reported. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's a terrible situation, as as, as you well know. Um, in the USA, um, which you know, some people don't often stop to think that it's it's the USA's um, desire for. Um, Class A drugs that, that brings about a lot of the criminality in Brazil and, and, yeah. and other parts of the Americas. Uh, but the USA has currently around one-fifth of the world's prisoners itself. Um, and it too has seen like a massive um, increase in prison population since, say, if you say you go back to 1980. And mm. by the way, you can go back a lot further than that on the World Prison Brief. Um, but if you go back to 1980, the USA had about half a million prisoners. And then it went up to a peak of 2.3 million in 2008, um, which right. I, I still find quite quite breathtaking, yeah. really. Um, you know, more recently, the numbers have started to decline and, and public opinion is shifting. 
with you know black justice movements black lives matter and others kind of pushing people mm. to, towards reform but i mean there's been cross party consensus that it that it had to stop um it had just gone far enough and that the tough on crime bills just hadn't created the the safe communities that people promised they would um yeah. and today you know i mean the costs of it american taxpayers spending a quarter of a trillion dollars a year i've I've read to uh, arrest try and sentence and supervise the seven million american adults who are either behind bars or on probation uh, or yeah, parole the numbers are just so huge it's, it's hard it's to really un- understand yeah, yeah yeah i mean but other countries are starting to sort of sleepwalk into into mm. into that so i mean moving across in our project countries moving to asia um in that continent, we're looking at India and Thailand. Um, so, so Thailand is another country that's seen its prison population surge, and again, it's it's the result of very punitive approaches to drug offences. So now, uh, I've been told recently that eighty percent of all prisoners are serving sentences for drug offences. Eighty, um, and it's even higher for for female mm. prisoners now. Yeah. Um, in India, um, it's an interesting one, actually, India, because it has a, a relatively low prison population rate, i.e. the number of prisons per 100,000. Mm. It's one of the lowest at, I think it's something like 34 prisoners per 100,000, compared to sort of well over 600 in, in the States. Right. But, yeah. I mean, but the interesting thing about India is that almost 70% of those inmates are pre-trial or remand detainees mm, um, a lot mm. of them are just lost in the system um, and and although the overall prison population rate is low um, those people just sitting waiting for for their cases to be heard or, or for their sentences to be handed down you know they, they are you know that is a, a, a terrible breach of their human mm. rights and their right to be presumed innocent yeah. And and quite rightly, it's it's been the focus of reform efforts for some time in India. Yeah. Um, and then um, looking at uh, our next continent, we've we've picked Australia for the continent of Oceania, and that is a country that's seen very punitive policies in recent years and has seen a very rapid rise in prisoner numbers. Mm. Um, with a really terrible over-representation of indigenous people. So they represent a quarter of adult prisoners in Australia, although they only make up 2% of the number of adult yeah. Australians in society. So I don't know, I, I can get on to Europe, Omar, but I, I don't know if you want to, to me yeah, to pause no, there. Mean, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, I was reading recently about, yeah, the over-representation of First Nations people in Australia, and it just, yeah, mm. there's lots of post-colonial countries where the, you know, the First Nations or the indigenous populations are completely overrepresented, or, you know, when thinking of settler colonies that have enslaved mm. people and taken them abroad, it, there's always that, that extra element. And mm. I guess what when when you're talking, um, I was, what I was thinking about is... How how do you hope this data will be used? Because you've kind of described a similar pattern in lots of places in terms of, you know, the, the number of prisoners has increased in both in the USA, in Brazil. You know, we've talked to several countries in Asia. We've just mentioned there's been increase all over the world. Mm. And yet the reasons you've already started to suggest are actually 
quite different in some places in Thailand. Mm. The, 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 there's um, even if even it might be drug related, the drug issues in Brazil, for example, are different to the drug issues in in Thailand. And so mm. I'm just wondering, you know, there's so much work that you, that you and your team have, have put into this, and what is it that you what is it that you go into hoping will be done with that data? That's such a good question. I think, obviously, when a country sees and when the citizens of a country see that their country has become a complete outlier, mm. um, that that can really help to sort of strengthen the hand of of citizens and of sections of society that are overrepresented. It can give them a boost to, I mean, when they've actually got the data uh, that they can use uh, it, it sort of takes their campaign to the next level um, mm. in, in terms of sort of shaming their governments into into bringing about change um, but but you know the data can only go so far it, 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 without real life stories without actual kind of uh, you know hearing from the people who are affected um, it, it is just data, and that, that I'm very keen to make sure that, that, that we're not just about data and, and that we're not just about statistics and that what we're doing can actually uh, talk about whole system change. And mm. so, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people working in the justice reform space are sort of beginning to tear their hair out um, after after decades of talking about, oh, prison should be a last resort. Mm. Um, what about justice reinvestment? I mean, nothing nothing really seems to have have worked to change the conversation in the minds of people who who aren't actually affected by mm-hmm. imprisonment. It is still such a hidden world um, for a lot of people, and and unfortunately for for politicians, it's just. It's all too easy uh, for that that hidden world to to be conveniently kept uh, <laughs> to be kept hidden, and and yeah. to, to not admit the links between this disastrous over reliance on on crime and justice responses yeah. to to social problems. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. I think my my answer is really I want the data to help inform the work of of everybody and and educate everybody to realise that. It's everyone's job to to, to to call this out, this over-reliance on, on criminal justice and, and punishment mm. and, and prison uh, to deal with problems that are very much socio-political in nature. Yeah. And do you feel, how do you feel about comparison generally? Because, you know, on one level, it's, it's you know, it's very interesting. And you've just said, uh, you know, politicians can sometimes feel like, or or people of a country may be have to feel that they're an outlier and so they want to do something about it but it can also be kind of twisted if it's Mm. not used properly and so I know (laughs) that you had a very interesting um is it, does it go as far as calling it a spat? Yeah. With, uh, a very famous, yeah. another famous person. You, you, you yeah. Celebrity, celebrity uh, in, interest. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, in, so I mean, I mean, to deal with your, your point, you know, comparisons can be can be dangerous and they can be a bit misleading. And, and you know, uh, it was it was quite interesting. At the beginning of this year, I was I was about to head off to, to Brazil to talk, uh, to address a conference of the... Uh, National Council of the Judiciary and, and 
sort mm. of I was journeying up on you know the latest Brazilian data they had actually just released um, some data on pre-trial imprisonment and because we'd just done a report on pre-trial imprisonment we knew that yeah. that Brazil's pre-trial prison population had had risen by 640 percent since since 1994 and we'd also talked to a number of Brazilian lawyers about you know what was going wrong with pre-trial decision making and and where the where the problems lay and how they could be fixed um but we were I was really surprised when a um a, a journalist from a fact-checking site in Rio, he contacted me, contacted me and said, um, oh, have you seen Twitter? The, um, the Minister of Justice in Brazil, Sergio Moro, has just said on Twitter that Brazil has no problem with pre-trial detention. Yeah. So, so I rushed to the, to the tweet and, and had a look, and, and he said, um, so what, what Moro was saying was, that so there are about 33% of pre-trial detainees in Brazil, we have fewer pre-trial detainees than Monaco, which has 56%, Switzerland, which has 42%, and Canada, Belgium, Denmark. So he gave all these examples of countries um, yeah. to, to prove his point that there was no excess pre-trial detention in Brazil. But I mean, the number of different ways in which this is wrong and misleading, it's like I had to spend quite a lot of time with the, the fact-checking guy. Yeah. You know, it's just very, very smart smart guy but you know I had to just unpick the whole thing for him but you know where where he'd gone com- completely wrong was was to com- was to ignore the the numbers of pre-trial detainees compared to to sort of monaco which probably had about you know three <laughs> so it's yeah. not a, it's not about the percentages it's i mean it's it's the numbers who makes up those those numbers as well so monaco and and belgium as well and switzerland they have very large numbers of of foreign nationals in their mm. pre-trial detention data um, and, and that reflects the, the ease with which judges sometimes think foreigners will, will flee justice. So, mm-hmm. you know, they put them into pretrial detention um, and, until their, their cases can be dealt with. Um, but again, they might not spend very long there, whereas in Brazil, you know, the, the, the proportion of non-nationals is something, it's under 1% um, who are in pretrial detention. Yeah. And the amount of time they spend there is I don't know. I think there were there was a, a report last year that said that it can it can range from about 170 days to 974 days in the state of Pernambuco. So I mean, the, the amount of time people spend there compared to the amount of time spent in some of these European countries, where yeah. the average is kind of 160 days or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, it took a little while to to put it right, but it. it it just proves that you know if if the data want to be you know if somebody wants to 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 misuse the data mm. um it, it's it's possible to do but it's it's really good when we can jump on it straight away and if people tell us about you know a questionable use of data like like the yeah. one like the one there so 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 yeah i mean another another pitfall with with comparative work which is you know yeah. more of a problem for us is when you take a group of countries like um, like we have ten countries, mm-hmm. and you say say you want to to show how all, almost all of them have overcrowding in their prison populations. But you know, if you have a graph of overcrowding and you show England and Wales 
is 105% overcrowded, but, um, you know, Kenya's 260% overcrowded. Mm. You you might get policymakers in this country saying, oh, well, we're not too bad, you know, it's not nearly as bad as as the countries you're looking at. That too can can be risky, and and obviously you have to be really careful how you present the data sometimes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, completely. And, you know, especially at the moment, there's so much of us are, are battling what is tends to be quite a punitive and a populist um, media in, in some spaces that where people are either not fully giving the, the context of a situation when they're using statistics or they're willfully hiding things. And so, mm. you know, this, the instance that you give of Sergio Moro, you know, what he's, what he said is that, yeah, you know, he's held up, countries like Switzerland or Denmark, which in Brazil will be seen as countries where oh, surely we should emulate, surely things will, uh, are modern and, and done well there. And if, if they've got lower percentage than us, then it must be great. And it's, it's appealing to um, a kind of a simplified narrative. And it's, mm. I just wondered, yeah, how do, you, how, do you just, how do you feel about a person, you know, on one side of a, of a fight there in terms of, you know, trying to make sure people are, um, aren't, aren't misinformed or, you know, do you, do you feel like you need to sort of take it to, to take it to the people or to, you know, to fight in some way to, to make sure it's used in the right way? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, there are, I, I would love to hear from, from people out there, you know, about the ways in which we can make this data you know resonate better mm. with with people that don't tend to think about statistics and and criminal justice data because you know it isn't enough just just for it to be used by um, academics policymakers specialist ngos and international agencies of, of course it's important that it's there for, for those people but it is also vital um like i said before that we don't lose touch with real lives and with people mm-hmm. who are actually yeah. affected. And so, I mean, one of the things that I've been doing with, with the project we've been running is interviewing people in custody and interviewing people who have recently experienced prison. Um, mm. So w- we began to do this within the 10 Country Project when we were researching prisoner health and healthcare um, uh, and, and preparing a report that we, we brought out on that last year. But we wanted to ask people, you know, what was what was their experience of prison in these countries recently and um, I'm hoping that through through the reports and, and through some of the other um, content that we release during the last few months of this project some of those those voices could can really be heard mm. you know by, by more than just you know the, the types of people that normally read reports because yeah. the testimony is, is really striking I can I can give you a few examples um, mm. so in, in Kenya um, a woman who had been recently released from prison in Kenya said it was very dirty our children regularly got sick with diarrhea skin diseases Mm. cholera they had colds all the time I mean in Kenya it's not unusual by the way for women to have infant children in hospital in in, um, prison with them Mm. and then in South Africa um, a man said we spend 23 hours a day in the cell there are 30 inmates in a cell for 15 hygiene is bad and in brazil um, a man who'd been released 
from prison recently told us people died when I was there. I had fevers. I had TB. I thought I would die. Mm. And in Thailand, um, a woman said, there are about 40 detainees in my cell. We lie down next to each other. So, you know, it's yeah, it, it, lots so. more of uh, testimony like that can, can be found in um, mm. in, the, in that report on prison health and healthcare. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because that was the next thing I wanted to ask you about. And I mean, just before I do, it's just yeah, it really brings home. You know, we've we've talked about statistics a lot, but it's it's real people and their their actual lives that we're talking about. And it's you know um, this report that you've that you've got on prison health. Um, it's really interesting because I could see how you're bringing together how prison health is really public health. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And it's actually a, a report that kind of anticipated the current prison health crisis related to COVID-19 and its effects. So, mm. yeah, I just wanted to give, kind of give you free reign to, to talk about that health project and and how, yeah, that came before mm. the, the COVID crisis and, and yeah, how you feel about where that report sits now in the, the ongoing narrative around health yeah, and prisons. Um, it's, it's really interesting. We, 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 there we were doing a project on imprisonment um, in 10 countries. And um, then I got a small grant um, from the Wellcome Trust to do a, a conference um, on, called Mapping Inequalities in Prison Healthcare. And I, I knew very little about health, public health or, or healthcare. But I, what I did know is that in this country um, and in many others, people with um, uh, often un, you know, unmet or undiagnosed mental health problems are very easily propelled into criminal justice and, mm. and, and ultimately imprisonment. And I also knew that, that you know, prison populations have a much bigger burden of physical and mental health problems than than general populations do. Yeah. And it just occurred to us um, that perhaps if we looked at the problem of overuse of incarceration from a health perspective and sort of stressed the fact that health is you know health, health is everybody's health you know you can't, mm. you cannot wall in health problems people get released from prison most prisoners you know go don't spend a very long time in, in custody and you know that prisons aren't sealed spaces anyway people come and go from prisons constantly people work in them people provide services in them so so we just thought well why don't we actually do a do a bit of research within this 10 country project on how well or badly prisoners' health and healthcare needs are met in in prisons in these countries, mm. and, and we just uncovered the most extraordinary um, amount of information on just just how poor prison populations' health tends to be, and the effects uh, for wider communities. So we. We were looking at the um, effects of incarceration on on the physical and mental health of prisoners, basically. Mm. And what we discovered was that you know, people who go to prison usually come from the poorest 
and most marginal sections of society mm. anyway. And so they have worse health and greater risk of disease before they even enter custody. And that's because yeah. of, you know, pre-existing socioeconomic and health inequalities. And also, um, it is far too easy for people with, with drug and alcohol dependency and other mm. vulnerabilities um, to, to, to be propelled into custody because of those problems. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then, of course, we found that prison environments do exacerbate existing health problems, and, and they often give rise to new ones. So yeah, the typical prison conditions... Uh, are not con- conducive to physical or mental wealth, uh, well-being. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the World Health Organization agreed that in, in 2014, uh, you know, incarceration is about reduced access to natural light, fresh air. It means poor diet. It means very limited opportunity for exercise, reduced mm. access to medical treatment, availability of illicit drugs and the presence of drug users. And it also means, you know, separation from family members and the other support networks that, that we that we have. It means mm. limited interaction with other people. It means the risk of violence, intimidation, and it means high levels of boredom and, and tension. So yeah. all of this basically heightens the risk of psychological stress, violence, disease, mistreatment, and the health impacts of prison are bad generally, but they're a lot worse for people in in certain groups, so younger people and, and women and older prisoners, LGBT prisoners. Hmm. They all have much higher risks of pre-existing health vulnerability, but they also have a much higher risk of experiencing illness in prison. Um, yeah. so, so that's what we found. And so what we decided to do through this through this piece of work last year was to to call for a more health-informed, public health-informed approach to penal reform. So rather yeah. than just looking at sort of narrow, you know, change the sentencing laws, change your criminal laws, change your, your pre-trial detention practices, yeah, all of that is vitally important. But but what can you do to <laughs> to step in earlier in the process to improve access to mental health treatment in the community what can you mm. do to make sure you reduce the numbers of people in poor health who who end up in prison for want of you know better provision in the community um mm. so so that's what and we so try to I do ask, with that yeah 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 so when you so when you talk about this health informed approach to penal reform is it similar to how some reformists will try and reframe the way we think about um, drug laws and drug offending is rather it being criminalised, thinking it as a health and medical issue. Is it is it a similar thing? You're trying to just reframe the whole thing so that we realise that the justice system isn't really separate from the health system and they cyclical in some ways. Exactly. I mean, I think both of those trends. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're probably thinking of the uh, the very successful um, approaches taken in 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 Scotland to uh, take out the, mm. the the punitive responses to to knife crime and 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 community sort of offending to to try and I think where where they draw some sort of common sort of philosophy from is is the whole harm reduction approach to to dealing with with um, with the harms of, of mm. uh, you know of, of, of crime and of, of law breaking and of 
of other social problems to, <clears throat> to if you take a harm reduction approach you're you're looking at the harm before the um, before the, the the need to punish um, mm. and it, it sort of accepts that that the punishment is largely based in sort of deterrence theory and and deterrence theory is sort of it, it fails to uh, to deal with um, the realities of, of why people commit crime. Um, mm. You know, people don't make rational um, calculations before most types of crime, particularly you know serious or violent crime, are committed. Mm. You know, we we know enough about this now to know that 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 doesn't happen. So if we know mm. that, let's let's be informed by what we know there and 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 start to take more of a a sort of harm reduction approach, a health informed rep- approach to this, uh, rather yeah. than continue with this um, punitive approach, thinking wrongly that it, that, that it'll help deter crime in the future. Yeah, yeah, I think it's so important, and it's, it still kind of remains the dominant narrative mm. amongst politicians and things. But okay, I mean, uh, we could though we could talk a, l- a lot about that. But I want to take a, a kind of a sidestep and ask a little bit more about about you and and your journey and and before you've talked to me about your weird journey in in criminal justice and from because you started as a a litigation solicitor is that right yeah yes I did um and you know I was one of those people that when I graduated I had a degree in classics and you know what what do you do with that I didn't want to teach I didn't want to be an academic Mm. um it was kind of yeah I, I just sort of fell into law a friend of mine you know was doing doing the uh, law conversion course in in london at the time and i was kind of kicking my heels i didn't know i didn't have a job yet i didn't know what mm-hmm. to do um i think i was i was waitressing in a in a pancake restaurant at the time and, and he oh, said look okay. you've got to do the law conversion course it's it's brilliant um you know you, you learn loads and it's it's you know you'll you'll be able to to go into law afterwards and if, even if you don't want to stay in it it's you'll get a grant those are the days where incredibly you know we we had a grant if we couldn't fund our own education which which I couldn't so mm. you know there I went there I was in London doing um doing the law conversion course and and that led to to doing um doing articles uh, at, to become a solicitor I, I joined one of the one of the big London law firms and you know I, I sort of think of it as a fairly unthinking journey into into a job that what you know the more time you spend working away the hours you know burning the midnight oil putting your your bundles of documents together mm. and doing these endless sort of disclosure exercises of, of, of preparing documents for massive trials which is which is how the young lawyers um had to work in those days no doubt still the same now you, you sort of the more time you spend on it you, the more you think oh i've i've got to stick with it now i've i've, I've committed and all this hard work's going to have to pay off and, the, and I, mm. I just sort of work woke up to the fact that it, it wasn't making me happy i mean i'm sure it does drive a lot of people and, and can be exciting and certainly it has had its moments but but it, mm. yeah i think it took a time out to I, I went to live in Brazil for a while and um, mm. decided just to to sort of reset and and, and, and really think about what, what interested me and what I wanted to do and that was an incredible 
um, thing that I was able to do. I was just very grateful that, that I had the, the time and, and the resource to do it. Um, I just rented my flat out in London and mm. it was it was cheap to live in Brazil at the time and, and I, I just had the time to, to have a rethink and learn a new cult learn about a new culture, learn a new language. Mm. And it just totally opened my eyes to a, a world of other possibilities for myself. And mm. it made me think about human rights. It made me think about, you know, what happens when you can't trust the police at all, when mm. the, the, the amount of police brutality was, I mean, it's, it's bad in a lot of countries, as we all know, it's bad in, in, in the States. And, you know, it, that's the one that's in the news right now. But, I mean, the amount of p- people that were being arrested and shot in the back of, of police vans before they even yeah. got to the station in Brazil at that time, and, and, and still the case now, it just yeah. it just woke me up. And it, it made me realise that um, that that was that was going to be my, my, my new world. And when I got mm. back to the UK... I started, um, you know, my journey started with, with volunteering as a, as a caseworker at, at Fair Trials um, back in the day where, where they took calls from people who'd been arrested in a country that wasn't their right. own, that wasn't their own country and, and didn't know how to find a lawyer or consular support. And it, it was very exciting work. And, you know, we developed a, a sort of policy function for the charity uh, based on the the real case stories that that people brought. You know, I worked closely with Jago Russell to, uh, to, mm. to 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 form that that policy function at, at the charity, and it went from strength to strength. and And it was it was good actually because very soon we realised that tapping into the stories of clients. Uh, that we represented, um, the, the way to do it effectively was actually often to, to speak not only to the clients themselves and their families, but their lawyers. So we formed this amazing network of activist criminal defence lawyers mm. across Europe and, and eventually beyond Europe too, you know, to, te- to help us understand what the, mm. the, the real problems were. Um, you know, we didn't just want to, to research what the law said or we knew we could never represent that many people effectively. We'd need to start forming this this network of lawyers that could step in in the country concerned. Yeah. Um, and, and that actually has informed my approach in, in the current work that we do at ICPR, We've we've done a lot of work with defence lawyers across the ten countries uh, to understand how sentencing decisions are taken in practice and how pre-trial decisions uh, are taken in practice. And so I think I can I can trace a line back to my legal yeah. career. It's yeah. always given. It's you know I'm actually the only person with with a legal background at the Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research. My colleagues mm-hmm. are all social scientists um, by background. Uh, in fact, no, I tell a lie. We have a we now have a barrister on board hmm. as of last year who's who's a right. specialist in the court of protection, Rebecca. So yeah, but no, 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 it's very much a sort of it's it's quite unusual to my, my I know that my journey is is weird and unusual, but you know, that's what makes it special to me. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And thinking about where you are now, I'm just wondering, you know, how do you feel about 
you know, because you, you work on such a wide area, you know, prison reform internationally, you know, you haven't made it e- easy for yourself to be able to see tangible impact mm. in certain ways. You know, it's difficult. And there's obviously so much wrong with so many systems that, that you'd like to, to see some change. And so I just wondered how you kind of frame it in your head and how you deal with it day to day. Because I, I ask because I personally struggle with it when, you know, when you, when you have such large scale systematic issues and you, you know you want to see some kind of change, and it's 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 so hard to to achieve anything, and everything is such long term work. I just wonder, you know, how what do you see as positive impact, and what do you hope to make? And I don't mean in terms of you know the, the way we have frameworks or written aims linked linked to the organisations mm. we work for, but I mean you as a as a human. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah. it's, um, do you know, the, the being being in lockdown um, over these months has actually really made me understand that a little bit better about about myself and, and mm. how I, um, you know, how I get out of bed in the mornings and, and what makes me tick at my job. Um, mm. I've really missed talking to people face to face about uh, meeting organizations in other countries especially and, and talking about their experiences and their work and you know I, I remember when when we were researching the prisoner health uh, report I, I spoke to a lot of women in um, in Kenya who had who had been in, in custody or experienced prison helping people who are released from prison in a little organisation called Clean Start Kenya, um, oh, yeah. and 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 they, uh, what, what, one of the sort of best feelings I've had in my job so far is when, after I'd I'd spoken to to these women and some other people they put me in touch with, they you know they saw their their quotes in my report and we we I sent it to them and we talked, you know we had we had an online meeting and it mm. was just the best feeling in the world to know mm. that they they saw their voices they saw their their real life experiences mm. reflected in you know in a serious document that was that was going to be presented at, at conferences around the world and and and, and you know it, that kind of thing makes me tick meeting people and meeting organizations who who do really have impact at the grassroots level mm. um that to me is is what makes it real um and what i miss um mm. so that mm. what what we'd hope to do in the in the, the course of this last year of the project in 10 countries was to to work a lot more closely with people and organizations in person than we've been able to do mm. It doesn't mean we we won't pick up on that work as soon as we're able to again, but but it's what I've missed, and it it, it made me realise that yeah. it's it's what I like about this about this job. Yeah, well, and maybe maybe this will help with the next question then. But so if we if we could create a room where we could have a, a meeting with people face to face, and you could choose who to put in that room, and we'd had half an hour to speak to them about anything that you wanted to in terms to you know, improve the impact of your work. Who do you think you want to get through to most and would put in that room and what kind of things would you be saying to them? Oh, God, that is a very, very interesting question. Um, it's like that that uh, perfect dinner party <laughs> thing that I've heard on the radio occasionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, similar, yeah, similar to that. But just, uh, I just, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, who who is it that we really want to get through to the most? And, you know, if we, if we tore it down to just some specific issues are there things that stick out to you more than others 
Well, you know, I, I have to come back to, to health um, because mm. I feel that there isn't nearly enough um, cross-disciplinary discussion on, on this issue. Um, mental health, drug and alcohol treatment, um, community-level change, uh, I, I feel that it's 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 been left in the hands of of criminal justice specialists and um, people whose whose main focus is is you know changing laws and and mm. and changing criminal justice practices when when perhaps we're looking in the wrong place. So I think it's it's also we've we've lots of contributors to your podcast have already very eloquently made this point that if we don't get the people who have real experience having lived through a criminal justice process and mm. have been in prison have tried to get access to uh, treatment or have tried to get access to mental health care in the community and, and haven't and you know who, who've been propelled into a, a custodial um setting where they're being treated when they could actually be treated in the community mm. if we could just have a room full of people with lived experience and people with with experience of the criminal justice health nexus mm. um then yeah I, I think we could really get somewhere um so yeah i think yeah. um and and people who work with 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 prisoners in a voluntary capacity People who go into prisons to to mm. train prisoners, to give them work experience, to um, provide counselling, whether it's religious or whether it's um, you know around programmes that prisoners have to do to prove that they're safe to release. We we need to hear mm. more from from them. Um, we need to get them all in a room um, to 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 talk about the the real challenges that that people in prison face. Mm. Great. No, I, yeah, I think that would be really interesting. Mm. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to come and have a chat. I will make sure I put links to both the projects that we've talked about today, which is the, the 10 country pre-trial detention um, project and the, the prison health project as well. And also to the, uh, to the ICPR online database with all the different countries. And so, yeah, I really encourage people to go and have a look at those. So really great resources there. But yeah, I just want to say thank you again for for coming on. It's been really, really great to chat with you. You're really welcome. Thank you so much. Cheers. Okay, thanks for listening. If you know someone else who might find this episode interesting, please do their man me a favour and share it with them now. Catherine today mentioned her work with Fair Trials International and back in episode four, I spoke with Jago Russell, who's their chief executive, all about how to ensure fair trials during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hope you enjoy that one too. Cheers. Cheers.